0: You can turn to the book of Second Timothy. We'll be in chapter 2 this morning. Trey mentioned at the top of the service that there's a women's accessory event coming up here at Southwood on October 6th. What he did not tell you is that the speaker will be my wife. Julia is going to speak for the first time. So yes, very excited, a little nervous. Um, because for those of you who go, you'll get to hear the, the rest of the story, You'll get to hear what it's really like to be a Jennings, growing up in the Jennings household. You'll find out a lot of stuff about me that maybe I don't share with you. So I'm really excited for you to hear what she has to say. The good news for you, ladies, is that in our family, she's the funny one. And so men, sorry, you're stuck with me. That's not my thing. I'm an engineer. She's hilarious. So ladies, mark that on your calendar. October 6th, you'll really enjoy that. She's got a lot of neat stuff to share from the story of what God has brought us through in the 13 years of our marriage. So I'm excited about that. Well, this morning, our sermon is going to be a little bit different than what we've done so far in 2 Timothy. It's going to be really deep. We're going to get into some really, really heavy theology this morning. So I hope you've had your cup of coffee. If you haven't and you're nodding off, there's coffee in the foyer. You won't hurt my feelings if you go get it because that's what I would do too. I want you to really grasp what we're studying in this sermon this morning because it is really deep, but it's also really life changing. It's really life giving what we're going to discover in our sermon this morning. My hope is that. That you will walk out of here this morning feeling a sense of both peace and purpose in your life that is more than you've ever felt before. So that's where we're headed. A little story for you. Uh, my parents tell me that I accepted the gospel when I was four years old. I was coming home from church, it was a Sunday morning, and I had heard the gospel in Sunday school, and there was some of it that I didn't understand, so I asked my parents about the gospel. I asked a number of questions throughout the course of the day, and that evening, as I knelt by my bed, I finally understood, as well as a four-year-old can understand, that Jesus is God, and he took my punishment in my place, and then rose from the dead so that I could go to heaven, and that sounded great to me, and my parents said, all I have to do is just accept Jesus into my life. Just believe that he died for me and rose from the dead. And so I knelt by my bed that Sunday night and I prayed to receive Jesus. And then I knelt by my bed and I prayed to receive Jesus on Monday night and on Tuesday night and on Wednesday night and literally hundreds of nights in my early childhood because I was a little boy. And I did bad things. I had a younger brother and we fought all the time and I often did not clean my room and I hardly ever ate my broccoli and I just knew that Jesus liked broccoli eating kids better than non-broccoli eating kids. And so every night I was afraid that salvation had rubbed off of me. That because of my bad deeds, Jesus had left. And so I had to invite him back into my life. That's a fear that's common for children. It's surprisingly common for adults too. Because we know that God wants us to obey. We know that God desires us to do good deeds. And so what happens if we don't? The question that many of us, adults and children alike, wonder is, what is the relationship between obedience and salvation? Do I have to do good deeds to get into heaven when I die? Well, that's the question we're going to answer this morning from a very ancient poem that Paul quotes in verses 11 through 13. But before we get there, we've got to set up the context. So let's read starting in verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. In his first few verses, Paul tells us four things about the gospel. These are not new things. We've seen most of these already in 2 Timothy so far. So Paul is kind of summarizing what we've learned so far. He tells us about the gospel. First of all, it's all about Jesus. Particularly, he says, it's about Jesus' resurrection and his relationship to King David in the Old Testament. So the resurrection, why does that matter? Well, when Jesus rose from the dead, that's when Jesus proved to you that he had defeated sin and death. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then sin won. It crucified God and won, and so you're still in your sins. But no, Jesus rose from the dead. That's what gives you victory over sin and death. So the resurrection is incredibly important. And then second, Paul tells us that Jesus is a descendant of King David. And that sounds weird, a little trivial piece of history. But actually, it's really, really important. If you read the Old Testament, you discover that all of God's promises could only be fulfilled by a genetic descendant of King David. And so this is Paul saying Jesus had the genetic qualification to be your savior and to be the king. Okay, so the gospel, it's it's all about Jesus. That's the first thing. Second, Paul tells us the gospel is our source of salvation. It's what saves us from punishment, from hell, from eternal separation from God, and delivers us into heaven where we'll spend eternity with Jesus. The third thing Paul tells us about the gospel is that it is unstoppable. The gospel cannot be imprisoned. Now, Paul is in prison, as he writes 2nd Timothy. And so what Paul is trying to help us understand is even if the world imprisons every single believer, the gospel will still go forth. The, The gospel will still go out there and convict men and women and lead them to truth and bring them to salvation. How? Well, God can do it through dreams. He can do it through angelic messengers. He can do it through Bibles falling out of airplanes. I've heard all these stories before. God can do anything because the gospel is unstoppable. It's like the U.S. Olympic basketball team. You really want to be on that team because you know you're leaving with a medal. For sure. U.S. The United States has entered a basketball team in the Olympics 18 times. They've won gold 15 times and a medal every time they're unstoppable. They're going to win. That's the gospel. It is unstoppable. It is going to continue to save all whom God has elected, everyone whom God has chosen. It will save them whether or not we're in prison or not. And so that good news, the fact that the gospel is unstoppable, that leads Paul to the fourth point. It's worth suffering for. It is worth suffering any difficulty in life, any imprisonment, ridicule, even death. Paul died a few months after writing this letter. He's saying it's worth suffering any pain, any ridicule, anything for the sake of the gospel. The gospel is God's message that saves. Okay, It's easy to say that the gospel is worth suffering for, but it's hard to do. I'm assuming that most of you in this room, you already know that God wants you to share the gospel. You know that God wants you to share the good news about Jesus with your family member who doesn't know Jesus or your neighbor, your coworker, your classmate who doesn't know Jesus. You know God wants you to share the gospel, but then when the opportunity comes, you chicken out because you're worried about what are they going to say? What are they going to do? You're worried about what's going to happen to the relationship or, or you're worried about what's going to happen to your reputation or your career if you talk about Jesus with this person. When suffering comes, when temptation comes, we chicken out and we don't stand up for the gospel. And so Paul ends our passage this morning with motivation. He wants us to understand why we should say yes To sharing the gospel, to obeying Jesus and following him even when it costs us. Why is it worth standing for the gospel, standing for Jesus when you suffer for it? So look with me. That's verses 11 through 13. 11 through 13. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Okay, so for the person who is wondering, is it worth obeying Jesus? Is it worth suffering the gospel even, or uh, sharing the gospel even when I suffer? This is your motivation and it's given in a short poem. This may not look like poetry to me because it doesn't rhyme. That's how English poetry works. This is ancient poetry. It's four perfectly rhythmic balanced lines, four parallel if-then statements. It's a poem and Paul calls it a trustworthy statement, meaning Paul didn't create it. He's not the author of this statement. He is quoting an ancient hymn that was memorized and spoken and maybe even sung by the first century church. And whenever Paul quotes a trustworthy statement, an ancient saying of the early church, which he does a few times... It's always because it's incredibly important. This little poem is a summary of the Christian life that is so true and so crucial that everyone in the first century church was expected to memorize it. You were expected to know it and understand it and say it to yourself and live by it. This is guidance for how to live the Christian life. So it's worth our attention. It's worth our time to try to understand it. So this motivation to obey that Paul gives in this little poem, the first thing that you need to do if you're going to understand the poem is you got to define some key words. So you got to figure out what do these words mean. So the first word that strikes us is died. We died with Jesus. Well, that's an odd thing to say because none of us are dead. I hope it's going to be really awkward Sunday morning if that's not true. I don't see any caskets here. I don't see anyone slumped over. Well, Paul doesn't mean physical death here. Died means change of identity. That's a connection that Paul often makes. When you were saved, when you trusted in Jesus, you died in the sense that your identity changed. Because here's the reality. Every person on earth is born a slave of sin. You are born dead in your sins. You belong to Satan. That's your legal identity from birth. But the moment that you trust in Jesus, that old identity burns. It's like the moment you trusted in Jesus, you took out your social security card and your driver's license and your credit cards, everything that could identify you as you, and you threw them on the fire and they burned up. Because the old you, the you before Jesus is dead. That's not who you are anymore. Your old identity is passed away. That's why sin and Satan have no legal hold on you anymore. Because you are not who you used to be. You are a new person, a new creation. You have a new identity that is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. It tells us in Colossians chapter 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're now in Jesus. This is true of all believers. Every person who is trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, the moment they trusted in Jesus, they received a new identity. The old you died, the new you began. So, died with Jesus, change of identity, true for all believers. Second phrase that we want to define is live with Jesus. So, if we died with Jesus, we will live with Jesus. That is a promise of resurrection, Paul's saying that everyone who is trusted in Jesus, you have died with Jesus, you will in the future live with him in the same sense in which he lives today. He died, he was put in the grave, but then he rose. He came back to life with a new, resurrected, perfected body. That's what you will receive in the future. You will be resurrected so that you can bodily exist with Jesus Christ in heaven for eternity. So these first parts, this is all believers If we died with Jesus, we will live with Jesus. If our identity has been changed, we will be resurrected. Third word that we want to define, endure. If we endure, in Greek, the word that's translated endure, it means to stand. Stand one's ground, unmoved. So it's like a storm is blowing against you and you stand strong on that ground. You're fixed. You will not move. So what is this ground that we're standing on? Will you define that By context, it's the gospel. When the world wants to silence you from sharing the gospel, you stand strong. You continue to share the gospel, to speak the good news about Jesus, no matter what persecution comes. And so endure means to suffer for the gospel. Even when life gets hard, when you are being persecuted, when you're being ridiculed, when, like Paul, you're being imprisoned for your faith, you stand strong and suffer for the sake of sharing the gospel. You're going to share the gospel no matter what. Okay, so that's what endure means. How about deny in the next line? Well, because this is poetry, ancient poetry, when when we have a contrast, which we do, it means that the word is used exactly the opposite. It has to be the opposite of what came before. So, deny means you didn't endure. To deny Jesus means you were unwilling to suffer for the gospel. When life got hard, When the world made it painful for you to follow Jesus, you cut and ran away. You you gave up. You you surrendered. You you decided to succumb to the pressures of the world and chase the pleasures of the world rather than stand strong for Jesus. Paul gives us an example of people like that. Look back at chapter 1, verse 15. Chapter 1, verse 15. You, Timothy, are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. These two guys, Paul and Timothy, know them. They were in the church. They were associated with Paul and Timothy when life was good. But now life is not good. Paul is in prison in Rome. He is being brought to court before the emperor. He knows he's going to be executed very shortly. And so when life gets difficult, when persecution and suffering come... These two guys cut and run. They're unwilling to stand for Jesus when there's a cost to pay. Okay, so this idea, deny him, it means you're unwilling to suffer for the gospel. That's the same meaning as the next word. What does it mean for us to be unfaithful? It means we're unwilling to suffer for the gospel. Jesus wants us to faithfully share the gospel even when there's a cost to pay. But we're unfaithful to do that. We surrender when life gets hard. Okay, so those are what our key words mean. Now let's put it together. What's the point of this little poem? Well, there's two different views. There's the heaven-hell view, and there's the reward-loss view. We'll start with the heaven-hell view. The heaven-hell view, which is the more common view, actually, it says that the first group of people is the same, and the second group of people is the same. Died and endure, lines one and two. Those describe believers in Jesus who obey. Believers who stand strong and suffer for the gospel even when it costs them. But line three and four, those who deny, those who are unfaithful, those are unbelievers who reject Jesus, who have no interest in standing up for Jesus. So in the heaven-hell view, the first group gets heaven, the second group gets hell. If you're in line one and two, you're going to heaven. If you're in line three and four, you're going to hell. So let's go back to the question that we started with this morning. What's the relationship between obe- obedience and salvation? Do you have to do good works to get into heaven? According to the heaven-hell view, yes, you do. Y- you must do the good work of standing faithfully for Jesus and sharing the gospel even when you suffer for it or you are going to hell. Now, wait a minute. The Bible's really clear that salvation is by faith, not by works. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Seems really clear from Ephesians two, eight, and nine that salvation is by faith, not by works. So how do people who hold the heaven hell view reconcile Ephesians two and Second Timothy two? Well, there's three ways. That are very common here in the United States, three different ways practiced by churches in the US. Let me walk you through these just so you understand. The first is the Roman Catholic solution. Now, let me be really clear here there is a wide variety of views held by Roman Catholics. And my goal this morning is not to try to squeeze all Roman Catholics into one box. Some of you are Roman Catholics, so this may or may not describe your view. But the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church going all the way back to the 16th century Council of Trent is that salvation, getting to heaven, justification, it is an open question in this life. It's an open question that begins with your faith in Jesus but must be continued with good works so that when you stand before God for judgment, he will declare that you are saved. Here's how the Council of Trent put it in the 16th century. If anyone saith by this faith alone absolution and justification are effected, let him be anathema. Anathema is not a good word. It means Cursed. What it means is that according to the Council of Trent, salvation, getting into heaven, is really not by faith alone. Faith is the right first step, but now you need to back that faith up with good deeds like standing for Jesus and sharing the gospel despite persecution so that when God judges your life in the future, you will be found to be justified and saved. So in Roman Catholicism, justification is a future thing. It's an open question, and it requires both faith and good deeds. So in Roman Catholicism, good deeds are required along with faith to gain salvation. If you have faith plus good deeds, then when you stand before Jesus, you'll go to heaven. If you have faith plus some good deeds and no really, really bad deeds, then you'll be sent to purgatory where you will be purified and prepared for heaven. If you have faith, but no good deeds or really, really bad deeds, like you murdered someone, well, that's a mortal sin. You're going to hell no matter what. So that's the official teaching of Roman Catholicism. May or may not describe your particular belief if you're Roman Catholic. That's the first solution offered. Second, it's what we call the Arminian solution. Arminians, this is Methodists. So the Methodist church in the United States, a number of other churches hold this, but Methodists are the the primary group. Methodism is a part of the Protestant church, which we are too, broke away from Roman Catholics a long, long time ago. Arminians hold that justification is by faith alone in Jesus, and it happens the moment you believe. So if you've trusted in Jesus Jesus, You have eternal life. You are saved, but Arminians believe that good works are required to keep your salvation. So you have eternal life, but you could lose it. As John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, put it, "...the true believer may make shipwreck of faith and a good conscience may fall not only foully but finally so as to perish forever." So for Methodists, for Arminians, you receive eternal life by faith alone, but then you better follow it up with good deeds, like standing strong for Jesus and sharing the gospel, or you will lose your salvation and have to be saved again. So in Arminianism, good deeds are required to keep your salvation third solution that's out there that's most common for many of you, you've probably seen this at many churches, great churches that hold of this one, the Calvinist solution. So Calvinism is similar to Arminianism in that justification happens the moment you believe in Jesus. Salvation is by faith alone and Jesus alone. So you trust in Jesus and you receive eternal life, but just like Arminians and even Roman Catholics, Calvinists hold that good deeds are required to enter heaven because of passages like Second Timothy 2, 11 through 13. You got to have good deeds. And so they put the pieces together like this. God is sovereign. God gets what God wants. God wants you to have good deeds. And so if you are saved, you will perform good deeds. If you don't have good deeds, then it's proof of what? You were actually never saved to begin with. Here's how Calvinists put it in the Westminster Confession. This is Presbyterian. Presbyterians, many Baptists fit into this. All believers are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness. And here's the key. Without which no man shall see the Lord. You must practice holiness in this life. Holiness meaning moral holiness, obedience. You must obey and grow in spiritual maturity in good deeds or you're not going to see God in the next life. You will be condemned. And so in Calvinism, good deeds are required to prove your salvation. Absence of good deeds means you were fooling yourself. You were really never saved to begin with. So, Roman Catholics, Arminians, Calvinists, there's a lot that they disagree about, but there's one thing they do agree on. Their interpretation of 2 Timothy chapter 2. You must do the good deed of suffering for the gospel or you will end up in hell. If you don't stand for Jesus when persecution comes, if you deny him, if you are unfaithful to him, then he'll be faithful to send you where you belong, which is so those three views, a heaven hell view, they all agree on that basic understanding of the poem. We disagree. We hold a view that I'll call the reward loss view. Here's what we believe about this passage of poetry. Um, we call it a chiasm. That's a weird word. Um, in the ancient world, a lot of literature and ancient literature was laid out where the first and last go together and the middle goes together. So we look at the poem and this is what we see. Lines 1 and 4 are about the same thing. Lines 2 and 3 are about the same thing, which is different than what lines in four, 1 and 4 are about. So let me walk you through this poem as we understand it. Lines 1 and 4, I told you this would get pretty deep, so I hope you're, hope you're still there. If you're not, there really is coffee in the floor. You can grab some. <laughs> lines 1 and 4 are both about the security of your salvation. That if you have believed in Jesus, you are absolutely going to go to heaven no matter what. So line one, if we died with Jesus, that's true of all believers, we will live with him. We will be resurrected to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. It's a guarantee. Line four says the same thing. Even if we are unfaithful. Even if we do not obey Jesus, even if we don't stand up for Jesus when persecution comes, Jesus remains faithful to his promise to give us life, to save us. Why? Because he will never deny himself. And what line four is telling you, that, that little addition at the end of line four, for he cannot deny himself, that stands out. That doesn't fit the poetic structure. The reason for that little line is to tell you your eternal life is is dependent upon God's promise to God. Ultimately, it's about God, not about you. You see, God made a promise in Scripture. He said back in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him, what? Will not perish, but have eternal life. It's an absolute promise. God made that promise. God will not break that promise. Because for God to go back on his own word would be for God to deny himself. And God won't do that. So your eternity, your eternal security is not dependent upon what you do. It's dependent upon God's own faithfulness to God's own promises. So your eternal security is absolute. There's nothing that you could do to lose your salvation. And that's a point that Paul drives home in Romans 8. I've shown you this before. I hope you've written it down or memorized it. I think it's the two most powerful verses for your life you'll find in the Bible. Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What can separate a believer from the saving love of God? No created thing. Guess what? That's you. You do not have the power to separate yourself from the saving love of God. There's nothing you could ever do. Not murder, not genocide, not something as horrible as that that could separate you from the saving love of God. There's nothing that any created being could do to separate themselves from the saving love of God. So if you have trusted in Jesus, you are absolutely secure. There's no sin, no cowardice, no selfishness you could commit that could lose your eternal life. So the first and last line are about the security of your salvation. But we still have the middle of the poem. We still have lines two and three, which are about the requirements for ruling. If we endure, we will rule with Jesus. If we deny him, he will deny us the opportunity to rule with Jesus. Here's the idea. What you need to understand about your life is that God wants more for you than just heaven. God wants more for you than just heaven. I took Luke to his first football game a couple years ago. And uh, it's a long ways to go to get into Kyle Field. You, we took the bus and we walked a ways and we had to wait in line to get through the ticket counter. But we got in and if you know Kyle Field, you know that you walk up and there's these huge stairs that take you up. And my son loves stairs. And so he saw those first stairs that go in and he just starts going up and down. And, up. and he says, Daddy, can we just play here? And and I thought to myself, Buddy, if you love stairs, you ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) Just wait till we get inside the stadium. Well, that's us. We're inside the stadium through faith in Jesus. But God is now saying, don't camp on the stairs. There's something so much better if you will keep going up. Keep going further in. Follow Jesus further up. Because the best is yet to come. God wants more for you than just getting to heaven. What does he want? Well, we have to go back to Genesis chapter one, all the way back to the very beginning. First chapter of the whole Bible, first statement about human beings. God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You were created to rule. That is your reason for existing. That's your purpose in life is to rule the earth. God designed you to be a king or a queen ruling over this planet and that's still what God wants for you. Even though all kinds of sin happened in the next couple chapters, God did not abandon his reason for creating you. He did not create you to chill in heaven for eternity. He created you to rule his kingdom forever. And so Jesus is coming back and when he comes back, he will take some of us and invite us into the opportunity to rule with him. We will get to rule with Jesus. It talks about this in Revelation chapter 2. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end. So this is believers who obey Jesus in this life. To him, this is Jesus speaking. I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as a vessel's of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father. If you are faithful to Jesus in this life, then he will reward you with the opportunity to rule with him in his coming kingdom. Jesus is coming back to establish his kingdom on earth and he is inviting us to rule with him. Kings and queens with him forever. But We must endure. In this life, we must stand for Jesus now. If we don't, if we surrender to persecution, if we surrender to the pressures of this world and chase the pleasures of this world, then Jesus will deny us. Not heaven, but deny us the the reward of ruling with him in the future. So let's, let's put this together. Let's connect the dots of this view. Lines one and four are telling you about the absolute security of your salvation. Lines two and three are telling you about the requirements for ruling with Jesus. So let's compare this view to those other three views. A Roman Catholic view, Arminian view, Calvinist view. Here's the grace solution, the grace view. Salvation is really by faith alone. You believe in Jesus, that he died for your sins and rose from the dead, and you receive eternal life. That's all it takes. Salvation is by faith alone, and we agree with Calvinists. Once saved, always saved. You can't lose that salvation because Romans 8, it's dependent upon God, not you. But here's where we disagree with those other views. Good deeds are not required for salvation. Instead, good deeds are required for reward. Should you do good deeds? Absolutely you should. And I hope I'm being clear in that. I've had some people who have heard this to you and said, but wait a minute. Then why don't believers just go sin all the more? And I said, well, that's the whole point of the passage. If you sin all the more, you lose the reward of ruling with Jesus. You don't lose heaven though. Because heaven was never based on what you do. Heaven's always been based on what Jesus did on the cross. It is finished. It is finished. But ruling with Jesus, that's dependent upon what you do in this life. So good deeds, they're not required for heaven, but they are required for reward. Now, how do we prove this view? Well, the first thing we do is we remind you of some people in the Bible. Remind you of people like David. David was clearly a believer. We know he's in heaven, but what did David do? Adultery and then murder. Pretty bad stuff. And yet still he is saved. Mind you guys, like Solomon, David's son, Solomon, for sure a believer, incredibly wise man who became a serial idolater, married a thousand women and worshiped all their gods and as far as we can tell, died unrepentant for that and yet still a believer. Remind you of people like Peter, Peter who walked with Jesus. He had the privilege of actually being with Jesus on earth for three years and then when Jesus was arrested, what did Peter do? Exactly what Paul is saying, don't do. He stepped off of the gospel and surrendered to pressure and denied Jesus. I mean, it's the same word. Peter denied Jesus and yet Jesus comes back and restores him to be the leader of the church. We look at people like Paul. Paul's clearly a believer. We know that from the Damascus Road account. He saw Jesus and believed in Jesus. And yet here's what Paul says. In the book of 1 Corinthians 9, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. It's not about hell. Paul's not afraid that God is going to throw him into hell. What Paul recognizes is even though I'm in the family of God, now God wants something even better for me. He is calling me to rule with Jesus Christ for all eternity, but I will be disqualified from that honor if I do not discipline my body and walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. Paul recognized that there's something greater than heaven for those who will be faithful to Jesus Christ. You have the opportunity to rule with him forever. Paul didn't want to lose that. He makes the same basic point in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is a passage about how every single one of us has the choice, as believers, we have the choice whether we're going to spend our time and money and skills to build our own kingdom or build God's kingdom, okay? Our kingdom or God's kingdom. Here's what Paul says will come. If any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, whatever kingdom you've built, he will receive a reward. So if you have built for God's kingdom, if you have built something that lasts into eternity, you'll be rewarded. But if any man's work is burned up, meaning you live for yourself, you built your kingdom and it passed away after this life, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet so is through fire. If you're a believer and you choose to live for yourself in this life, you build your kingdom, none of it makes it into eternity, you're still saved. You still go to heaven, but you're not rewarded. So that's the view that we hold. I call it the grace solution. It's it's how Grace Bible Church puts the pieces together. Now, wow, this has been a lot of theology this morning, hasn't it? Pretty heavy stuff. So what's the point? Why should it matter to you? How does it affect your daily life? Well, because of the grace solution, Because salvation really is by faith alone, but ruling with Jesus requires obedience, the result is two things, peace and purpose. Peace, let's begin there. You can have peace because of the grace solution. God says in Romans chapter 5 through Paul, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, so you believed in Jesus, you are therefore declared righteous, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just my opinion, but I don't see how it's possible for this verse to be true with any of those other three views. Because in all three of those other views, ultimately, you have to look at your works. Have I done enough good deeds to either gain or keep or prove my salvation? I don't know. I'm always looking, trying to measure good deeds versus bad deeds, trying to figure out if I really still have peace with God. That security of peace is impossible if your works fit into the equation of eternal life. But in our view, they don't. If you have believed in Jesus, then you know you have eternal life. You never have to look at your deeds. Your works don't play in at all. Whether or not you're going to heaven. And God wants you to have that kind of peace. That's what He says in 1 John chapter 5. These things, John says, I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. God doesn't want you to worry about it, He wants you to know without doubt that you're going to heaven when you die. And how can you know? It tells you right there in the verse. Do you believe? It's not about your works. It's not about whether or not you stand strong when persecution comes. It's what you believe about Jesus. So has there been a point in your life when you do what I did when I was four years old, kneeling by my bed, have you gotten to that point where you believe that Jesus is real? That he's God's son who took on human flesh, lived for you, and then died on the cross for your sins? And then rose from the dead to give you life as a free gift. Do you believe that about Jesus? If you do, then you have eternal life. You're going to heaven and nothing can ever change that. If there's something keeping you from believing that, please come talk to me. I'd love to help you wrestle with your beliefs and your doubts. If you have trusted in Jesus as your Savior, then your salvation is absolutely secure and so you can have unshakable peace in this life. You do not ever need to look at your deeds to figure out whether or not you're going to heaven. All you need to do is look at Jesus and you know that's where you'll be. So because of the grace solution, we can have complete unshakable peace in this life. But we can also have purpose. It's said that the two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. You now know why. Why were you born to be a king? Why were you born to be a queen? You weren't born just to go to heaven. You were born to rule the earth with Jesus Christ on God's behalf. That's why you were made to rule. But to rule you must endure in this life. We are being tested in this life. I like to think of this life for believers. Like us, this life is an extended job interview. That's what this is. This 80 years you get on this rotating rock It is a job interview by Jesus Christ himself. He is looking for faithful believers who are ready to rule the world in the future. If you're not faithful, you're still going to heaven, but he's not going to give you more responsibility then. If you are faithful in this life, though, then he's going to reward you with the opportunity to rule the earth at his side for eternity. And so please, ladies and gentlemen, if you're a believer in Jesus, please do not spend your life camping on the stairs. Follow Jesus further up and further in. He wants so much more than just heaven for you. He wants you to rule at his side forever. But you must be faithful to follow him, to obey him, and to speak for him, to speak the words of the gospel even when you suffer for it. So I want you to look at your life for a moment. I want you to think about your life. Is God calling you to sacrifice something in this life for the gospel? To to follow Jesus. Is there something that God wants you to give up? Is there some behavior that God wants to change in your life? So that you can better follow Jesus. So that you can represent Jesus to the world better. Is there some risk that God is calling you to take for the sake of the gospel, to share the gospel with someone who doesn't know it yet. I am not going to ask you yet to take that risk or to change that behavior or to make that sacrifice. All I'm going to ask you to do is to begin to pray that God will do whatever it takes to make you the kind of believer who endures. Will you begin to pray that each day this week? God, please, I invite you to do whatever it takes in my life to make me faithful to your son, Jesus. Ask God, God, please change my heart so that I want to stand for the gospel. Work in me, God, do whatever it takes so that I endure, so that I can rule with Jesus forever. Will you begin to pray that each day this week? Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would open our eyes, that you would soften our hearts, that you would break our stubbornness and our pride and our rebellion, and that at the end of the day, you would do whatever it takes in each of our lives as individual believers to grow us into men and women who will be faithful to Jesus. We pray, Heavenly Father, that your spirit would work in our hearts to grow within us a desire to be faithful to Jesus. We pray that we would want to follow him further in and further up, that we would be willing to tell others about him. We pray, Heavenly Father, do whatever it takes. Take away whatever in our lives is keeping us from following Jesus. Change whatever behaviors are getting in the way. Help us to take whatever risks are necessary to follow Jesus. Please, Lord, work in our hearts this week to call us forward so that we would endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. Help us to be faithful to your son, Jesus Christ, because he is worthy. Lord God, he is worthy. And we praise you, Heavenly Father, that you desire something more than heaven for us. And that is phenomenal. There's probably many people in this room who've never even thought about that reality. Heaven sounds so amazing. It sounds like the best thing that could ever be. And yet you want more than that for us. Not because we're worthy of it, but because you created us to rule the world at the side of your son, Jesus. Jesus. We praise you, Lord God, that you would care at all about weak, broken sinners like us. You are so gracious. We praise you, Heavenly Father, that you have called us and equipped us to stand as kings and queens in the kingdom of Christ for all eternity. We praise you for that honor. We pray that you would forgive us for the times in this life when we have lived for the small things of this world rather than for Jesus Christ and for the great and grand things that he's calling us to. We pray, Heavenly Father, please help us to follow your Son further in and further up so that we might prove to be faithful servants ready to rule the world with him when he returns. We praise you and thank you for your son Jesus Christ. May we have peace and purpose through the clarity of your word. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you next week.